This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So we have two CFOs of, of Silicon Valley tech companies and a head of multi-asset unit at a global investment firm. Mike, Dan, and Riley, welcome back to GSM. And I'm eager to hear your insights about the post-COVID-19 economy. For the first part of this forum, we have five questions and I will pose the questions one by one and let each of the panelists answer each time. I did the math, so if I'm correct, that means you have about three minutes for each question. So let me start with question one. What has been the effect of the COVID-19 virus on, the, on your industry so far? How has the virus created particular challenges for your job, either as CFO or as portfolio manager? And I'll start with Mike. Okay. Well, thank you, Ayako. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here tonight. Uh, if I look at the industry, for me, I'm going to be talking about enterprise cloud software. And I have a variety of affiliations. One is I'm CFO of Velocity, as, as Ayako mentioned. I'm also audit chair at Okta. You may know that company. I'm also audit chair at a collaborative uh, um, design company called Envision based out in New York. So I really have all those perspectives. And what's kind of interesting about the way the backdrop hit here is um, yeah, back in February, when this, all this news was breaking about COVID and it was becoming a big deal, we were in the middle at Velocity of negotiating an acquisition by Salesforce. And honestly, we announced that, we, we signed and announced that deal back on February 25th. And had it, honestly, had that slipped a week or two, although they very much strategically want to own this company, I think it might not have happened. I mean, it would just, it had just gotten way too cumbersome. And as a matter of fact, if I look at how it affects us, and then I'll broaden it out to industry a bit, but there's some extrapolations here. Um, we've had to do the entire um, uh, integration planning process. We're going to get all the way through the close, and we will never be together in the flesh. It is unprecedented by me. I've done maybe 20 M&A activities. Um, Salesforce, who've done quite a few M&As, you know, Tableau and MuleSoft and some others, they've never, ever done this before, but we're going to have to do everything remotely. So we're learning how to do things incredibly remotely. Um, Wait, any comments I make about COVID? I talk about COVID all the time. I'm actually on the C19 or COVID-19 committee at Velocity. We're doing a lot of work now with the committee over at Salesforce. And we talk about Velocity all the, just perpetually. Um, so I'm going to try really hard through this evening, as I know the other panelists are, to not just state the obvious. I mean, COVID is, is discussed constantly. And it's just too easy to talk about things that we all know. So I'm gonna to try to avoid that as best I can. Um, what I will say about um, our industry, enterprise software, is that uh, it's, it's somewhat resilient. Why is it resilient? Well, it's resilient for a bunch of reasons. One is in enterprise um, cloud, you're, you find that about 90 to 93%, maybe even 95% of the revenue stream is being radically recognized from past sales. So it certainly smooths things, um, as it were. It's like an annuity. If you don't have churn and scope reduction, churn meaning lose a customer, scope reduction means what they're uh, buying from you shrinks. 
it's just, it's, it's not impervious, but it just, it's at a minimum, it defers the pain and it smooths the pain. So I think that's really important. And, you know, there are countless companies that, that, uh, that, that are in this space, you know, Salesforce being the biggest, you know, ServiceNow, Workday. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there are so many, and I, I, I'd like to touch base on that. But what you find is these typically are ca- companies that can raise cash if they don't already have a lot of cash. A company like Salesforce has eight, $8 billion on the balance sheet, so that's good. So it makes them, you know, certainly that's a hell of a war chest. Um, and they tend to generate cash. I mean, for mature enterprise cloud company, they will generate somewhere between 20 to 25%, maybe even 30 or more percent of revenue and cash flow and free cash flow. And they tend to be valued very richly because of that. That's why these companies are worth so much when they're relatively small. I mean, you look at Okta. That's a company where I sit on, on, uh, on the board there, and they're, you know, they're valued at $22 billion on you know, sales that are in the several hundred million. So in a traditional sense, that math wouldn't work. But when you, when you look at the way the curves of these business models work, it actually says that's a very fair value. So that's, that's very interesting. So I'd say very resilient, just generally. The other thing I'd say about uh, enterprise cloud is a lot of the companies in enterprise cloud, are, um, they're all about digitalization. Well, digitalization has never been more important. It's more important, why? Because it actually, just by kind of fortunate serendipity, I guess you could say, it, um, it enables distributed workforces, it enables collaboration, it enables distance learning, and, 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 and then as a kind of overarching backdrop to all of that, security is crucial, right? That's why companies like Zscaler and Okta and, and uh, you know, so many companies in the security, Palo Alto networks in the security space are doing so well. So if you're in any of those categories, which is a lot of the companies in enterprise cloud, you actually have a bit of a tailwind because of something like this that is mandating a fast shift to, um, to uh, distributed workforces. Matter of fact, and I'll get off because my three minutes is probably up, but um, if you look at a report that, that Okta puts out on a, on a regular basis, it's, it's their, their new work from home. It's available right off the web. Because they have such a huge market share and people have adopted Okta so broadly because you need it to manage identity with all these SaaS apps, they're able to publish, and it's very much, it, Wall Street loves this stuff, they can publish which, which software SaaS apps are being utilized the most and who are, who's growing the fastest. So these are the fastest growing tools post-COVID uh, by unique users. Number one, Zoom, Palo Alto Networks, Cisco, AnyConnect, Citrix. They only fall in those few categories I've talked about. Proofpoint, RingCentral, WebEx, um, uh, LinkedIn Learning, DocuSign, Slack, Quip, Smartsheet, and, and Zscaler. So it just, that's absolute quantitative evidence that, uh, that what I mentioned is true. That's probably <laughs> enough for me for the first question for now. I'll turn it back over to you, Ayako. Thank you, Mike. Um, you're, you, we touched on some of the question too, so you're okay on time. And um, it's interesting you mentioned about the, your M&A integration being all done remotely because that really connects to our later question about the digitization of the economy and how that accelerates under the COVID, post-COVID economy. Um, what, a lot of what you talked about in the enterprise cloud, I'm really curious to hear Dan's thoughts as well, given that you're in a similar space. Dan, please. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Professor. You know, um, 
it's a bit of a different impact for different scale of businesses you know what what mike shared i think is is spot on for larger businesses of scale like salesforce and adobe and and some of the other names of course a lot of what's in the bay area are vc backed startups that haven't reached yet the 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 likes of the free cash flow generation that the larger companies have and so for those companies it you know it comes down to you know, liquidity um, as, a, as a most urgent and pressing problem um, because they're not generating positive free cash flow yet. So if you've recently raised uh, funding, you're in a better position than somebody who was in the process of trying to raise funding uh, substantially so. Uh, so that's one of the dynamics that's playing out there for, you know, the earlier stage VC-backed companies. Um, as you look at public companies, even those that are still on a smaller scale than the big guys, um, you know, most are pulling guidance uh, for their fiscal year. Uh, most guiding for the current quarter, um, you know, about 80%, uh, at least some of the stats I've seen are still giving guidance for the current quarter, but they're pulling, pulling guidance for the full year. So really telling the story that uncertainty is is really the new new normal, right? Folks are waiting to see how this unfolds. Pulling guidance, just to clarify, meaning they're refraining from giving any guidance to the markets for the post first quarter, first second quarter. Yeah, whether whether revenue or, or margin or, or anything for the right. most part. That's right. Right. Um, you know, some of the other stats I've I've been looking at are you know the business model matters. Mike alluded to the, the benefit of a recurring revenue model. Um, and it's very true, right? You look at the nature of the companies impacted through the lens of who is pulling their revenue guidance, who is not, um, or and for those that are uh, giving guidance, the magnitude of the impact to their businesses is is more significant in you know the, the perpetual license businesses, really the one-time revenue recognition sale as opposed to the ratable recognition sale. Um, and so you're seeing much more companies more heavily impacted with that perpetual license impact. Um, and then even for subscription SaaS businesses, um, it, it comes down to really two things, right? It's the retention of your current install base um, for that recurring revenue, what you can keep, what churns, what contracts, uh, what you can grow in that install base, uh, and then also how much new business you can generate. And the relative impact to your business is a function of what you sell and, and how much your customers need you. It really comes down to how mission critical your technology is to your customers um, and, and the mix and the nature of your customer base. So customers uh, or, or companies with uh, customers much more weighted towards the mid-market and enterprise, uh, like Sitecore, where I've come from recently, um, it's a mission critical web content management technology. You know, a customer can't just shut it off without a significant impact to their business. Um, and so retention is still quite strong in a company like Sitecore, um, given that the, the customer base and the, the nature of the technology is, is, is suited to it. But the net new business um, is where they're taking a bigger impact. Uh, I think in aggregate, companies pulling guidance or are seeing about a 4% impact to overall revenue guidance on average. Uh, but when you try to carve out the net new business impact in isolation, um, mm -hmm. you know, separating the growth of your install base, 
um, that can be as significant as 30 to 50% across some companies. I see. And then in, in others that are more concentrated on small business or the lower end of the mid market, um, which are obviously much more heavily impacted segments of the market for, you know, economically, uh, those are taking a big hit on, on retention, you know, customers either churning altogether or reducing spend dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, as Mike also alluded to or pointed out that, you know, many of these companies are, you know, digital first technologies. So I think on some level will benefit from uh, a quicker recovery uh, than, than companies not, not in, a, in a digital market. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for that contrast. Um, uh, there is a question that I would really love to ask all of you in, in, for things that you alluded to, but maybe let me be disciplined and <laughs> stay on time. Maybe I'll, I'll post a question in a part two. Um, so it sounds like both of you have, have spoken about the second question already. So let me go ahead and let the audience know the question too, which is, what parts of your business seem to be resistant to economic effects of the virus? What kind of operations seem to go on despite social distancing and economic downturn? So since both of uh, the companies that Mike and Dan uh, worked for are in the digital uh, cloud space, that is a uh, already a very resilient sector. But both uh, Dan alluded to sort of a nuanced differences between the large businesses and the small businesses, softwares that are targeting small businesses are hit harder, et cetera. And whether it's mission critical uh, products, the companies are still purchasing versus less so in the difference between retention and new businesses. Now, um, for Wiley, for you, I recognize since you're watching portfolios that span multiple sectors and multiple asset markets, um, rather than this question be about your company, you can choose your vantage point at whatever that as you see fit. But the question again is, what is the impact of the virus on your industry? What are the particular challenges and what, what parts do you see are more resilient than others? Certainly, thank you, Professor, and uh, best uh, wishes to everybody on the line. I hope everybody's uh, staying safe and healthy uh, during this weird sort of shelter-in-place time. Uh, I'll I'll divide my answers actually in terms of sort of our company, a global investment manager, and then also our clients and our managed portfolios, because I think. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's been a very interesting few months. Uh, in terms of our company, uh, we've actually been remarkably resilient. Uh, asset management is largely uh, a virtual industry. Uh, most money transfer, most trading, most business operations can be conducted virtually. Uh, we face-to-face meetings in most cases are not required except for the very largest uh, institutional mandates. And we're seeing even some of those uh, institutions are starting to be willing to make decisions uh, regarding new mandates in a virtual environment. Mm-hmm. Although the moving to the virtual environment definitely has slowed the decision-making process. 
uh, you know, many large institutional investors make decisions via investment committees or boards, and those boards aren't always uh, as adapted to this virtual making decisions in a virtual environment. Franklin Templeton has about 9,000 employees globally, and 95% of us are working from home. And we were able to transition to do that uh, very quickly, almost within a few days. Uh, we are headquartered in San Mateo in the uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, and we saw the tech industries around us actually transition to working from home even prior to the work from sort of shelter in place order coming from the governor. Uh, yes. So we, uh, we also followed suit and started working from home before it was required. Um, and so in general, uh, our company has been quite healthy. Uh, and as the sort of the working from home has been a very seamless transition, we also have many offices throughout Asia, uh, particularly Hong Kong and Shanghai. Um, and so we had a little bit of a preview of what to expect uh, coming from of our, and I have staff in those regions. And so we, we had a little bit of a preview of, of what to expect from a work environment uh, and how to get business done uh, from, because they were several months ahead of us actually in trying to deal with this. So I would say overall, our company's been quite resilient. Uh, one of the other uh, kind of unique elements of asset management is we earn our fees in general as a percentage of the assets that we manage. Uh, and those fees are earned 24 seven, whether we're open or not, <laughs> I guess it'd be the way to, to say it. So we're, we're not necessarily on a day-to-day -day basis over the short term. Uh, we don't necessarily have to, um, you know, add sales uh, to generate revenue. Um, our sales essentially are generating performance, which takes place over a longer term period. So to deal with a relatively short term crisis where people can't make investment decisions is a tolerable thing, at least for the short term. Now, over the long term, and this I'll transition to transition my comments to talking about clients and portfolios for a moment. Uh, we're in the business of generating performance, uh, investment performance, uh, consistent with a, the level of risk chosen by our different client types. And um, this was the fastest market equity market drawdown in history, even faster than what happened in 1929 or faster than the great financial crisis from a market record market levels in mid-February to the low point in, in early mid-March. Uh, that was the fastest decline in history from a, from a peak to a trough. Uh, then followed subsequently by the fastest rebound in equity markets in history. So it has, it, it appears at first glance that uh, investment markets uh, along with the rest of the world, and this could be driven by technology, by much quicker communica global communication, uh, and just much faster moving uh, decision-making, including by, uh, by sort of algorithmic uh, investment activity, that financial markets are just moving faster and faster and faster. Uh, so that's one kind of conclusion that we're taking away from this thing is uh, they're absorbing information and incorporating it faster and faster. Uh, this, this peak to trough uh, and then recovery was, was three to four times quicker than anything else we've ever seen in history. Now, happily, things did recover. We're only, believe it or not, down 
um, you know, five to 8%, depending on the equity market that you're looking at from where we were uh, back earlier in the year. So we're down. At one point, we were more than 30% down on in, in uh, our equity portfolios. Um, we're back up. The NASDAQ is actually close to positive for the year, believe it or not, um, because partially because of some of the tech-driven uh, investment opportunities uh, that this uh, work from home and everyone having to shelter in place has really made available, and just how resilient and how dependent we've all become on those technology companies. So uh, one last phenomenon I'll just make a quick comment on is uh, one of the other common uh, sort of side effects of the, this type of market volatility is uh, client behavior. Uh, when we see extreme markets like this, uh, it triggers a whole group of uh, behavioral biases amongst investors. Uh, and those usually start with our retail investors um, who have less experience uh, and less experience tolerating volatility uh, see their balances shrink dramatically and quickly uh, and can can really trigger a, bun a, a number of behavioral bi biases that that actually Professor Barber uh, at uh, the GSM has written about extensively, including loss aversion uh, and uh, sort of recency bias, all sorts of things that cause people to make dumb decisions at the perfectly wrong moment. And so from my perspective, my, I and my team have spent an awful lot of time with clients, uh, including, believe it or not, in sophisticated institutional clients, because this was such a rapidly moving crisis that we had very experienced investors uh, that are some of our clients actually, you know, considering making some, some, pretty, um, some pretty unusual decisions at the, at the bottom of the market turmoil. Uh, and so spending a lot of time talking them through and trying to keep them invested so that they can experience the rebound um, that, that uh, we believe is coming. And so in general, that's how the COVID crisis has changed my time from really being focused on constructing portfolios in the short term and bringing in new clients. The COVID crisis is focused on keeping existing clients uh, invested uh, and focused on the long term and trying to keep them potentially from getting too caught up in the moment-to-moment -moment volatility that we experienced and, and witnessed. Thank you, Viley. That was very insightful. Um, it, uh, you mentioned the, the, just the record drop and then the rally in the stock markets. And just, I wanna relate that to the tech industry's resilience. One of the interesting observation is how large the tech is as a percentage of the entire stock market. Uh, the largest tech companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook, is those five companies about 20% of the large stock index. And you have, you, and, and in the meantime, oil industry, which have suffered very severely in the recent months, yes, they have been really losing, but it's only 3% of the stock market. So the tech are really a big reflection of how the stock market has been, has been behaving. Um, let me move to question three. So question three is, uh, the, is, is the following. McKinsey and other consulting companies are discussing the various effects on the economy in terms of a, a alphabet letter. So they're talking about V-shape, 
there, where it's a quick drop and a quick recovery. They're talking about U-shape, and they're talking about a W. And I recently, I also heard a swoosh, as in the Nike logo, as an alternative description of the economy recovery with the steep drop and maybe a gradual coming back. So there are all kinds of uh, logos and symbols to describe the recovery process. Now, for your industry specifically, how do these models apply? Which model do you think is most meaningful for your industry? And for, for this, um, uh, I'd like to start with Dan. Sure. Thank you, uh, Professor. And <laughs> nice to know that the Nike swoosh has been added to our alphabet. <laughs> the, uh, you know, it's funny, we've been, there's a lot of talk about the letters that you apply to this. Um, and again, I think the tech industry, enterprise software in particular, one is resilient in the beginning and two, because it's, you know, digital first by nature, um, I think is likely to recover more quickly as well. Um, you know, it takes the near-term pain of, of, you know, CFOs like, you know, Mike and I here going through line items in our, our P&L looking for ways to save money. Um, but, you know, at the same time, companies are looking for ways to improve their digital presence, improve how they interact with customers digitally. And so many of these uh, of you know, enterprise SaaS companies are focused on exactly that. Um, so I think as long as as long as the the company to begin with is resilient enough to make it through the worst, I expect uh, the return is likely to be more more V-shaped. Um, and, and then I think those that uh, aren't as focused on you know true digital transformation are likely to be more you know sort of the Nike swoosh shaped. You know, ultimately will recover, uh, assuming they can make it through the worst, uh, but uh, less likely to rebound as quickly, I think, as those those that are really suited to, that, whose technologies are suited to a work from home world. Are you muted? Excuse yeah, me, I'm muted. Uh, yes, uh, Wiley, could you uh, go next? Certainly. So um, obviously, as I mentioned, what we've observed in financial markets and, and portfolios is something of a V-shaped recovery. So obviously, very significant drops when people started to realize the potential impact of COVID-19 on economies. And those were, that was a global phenomena. Uh, and then we saw a very sharp rebound in financial markets uh, for a, a number of reasons. But primarily because of the massive degree of monetary and fiscal stimulus uh, provided by central banks in different parts of the world. Uh, literally trillions of dollars uh, added to central bank balance sheets in the US, the UK, the ECB, Australia, Japan, um, India, uh, many, many countries uh, really stepped up to the plate and the central banks were the first to act and that helped sort of reinvigorate capital markets uh, to the point where our Fed is now actually for the very first time buying corporate bonds to support the corporate bond market and ensure that corporations still have a, have a resilient bond market to borrow from. Uh, that helped re really helped reinflate equity markets, as I mentioned. So capital markets, we've seen a V-shaped recovery. And if, if past 
experience is any guide, what we are likely to see in capital markets is a W. So we are, it's chances are we're going to try to retrace some of those lows at some point. Um, almost every every capital market downturn we've seen in the past century uh, has observed that W shape in its recovery pattern. Very rarely do you get just a downturn and a quick rebound. Of course, they're very difficult to predict. They're actually much more difficult to predict over the short term than economies and economic statistics are. Uh, so we're, we're not exactly sure the, which direction and whether we retrace the lows uh, from our portfolios are positioned in kind of a neutral way right now from a risk and return perspective. So if we retrace the lows, we will suffer, but, but uh, not uh, sort of out in a way that is different than many of our peers. Uh, we're not, we have not gone completely conservative, but nor have we taken uh, additional risk. So we're, we're kind of neutrally positioned for that potential uh, additional drawdown if this mar capital market uh, experience uh, works like as it did in the financial crisis and the dot-com bubble and the Great Depression. The real economy, uh, I tend to agree with the idea of it being a swoosh. I hadn't heard that before, but I like it. I was calling it a, a, a U-shape with a lazy uh, right vertical, uh, a lazy and bumpy right vertical. And I think if it is a swoosh, it's going to be a swoosh with, uh, with some bumps in it. And again, we're seeing the early signs of that uh, from China, uh, from Hong Kong, from some of the Asian countries that had to deal with this first, is that it's not a straight line back up to uh, a fully functioning economy. It's a slow, bumpy, uh, in the real economy, it's a slow and bumpy ride back. You have to keep in mind that capital markets and the real economy are two very different things. And right now they're somewhat decoupled. Um, because the real economy here in the U.S. and in much of developed Europe, I think, is going to have a rocky and, and uneven uh, road back. And the new normal is going to look differently, uh, look quite a bit different uh, than the old normal. We can think about industries that will be particularly impacted. Uh, hospitality, obviously, travel, airlines, the cruise industry is going to take maybe decades to, uh, to recover um, but we can also think about industries that are going to benefit from this uh, healthcare, technology, obviously, uh, are some potential beneficiaries. Consumer staples uh, have done very well, uh, as well as some commodities um, because of, uh, of potential longer term demand for certain types of commodities. So uh, it's a mixed picture, but overall, we're predicting a, a slow and bumpy and uneven path back to where we are that will progress through the end of 2020 and into 2021. Certainly right now, it's jarring to see the stock market rallying day after day when we are also hearing large unemployment claims week after week. But you really uh, illuminate how the stock market doesn't really tell you all the granularity of the mixed landscape that we see in the real economy. Thank you for that comment. Uh, Mike, please, what do you sure. see from where you're? Yeah, there are a few things and why I'd be interested in your observations around the fixed income market as well. I mean, during this situation, the muni market went really upside down very quickly and it just took a huge divot. Government had to step in on an urgent basis and stabilize things. 
I mean, it, it, fixed income is, is is very relevant as well, and uh, that has required a lot of government intervention to uh, to stabilize there. I I, I think that this is very interesting. I think uh, I totally agree with the with the sector bias in, in your thinking, for sure. The other one that is likely going to do quite well is uh, communications, media, maybe even utilities. Uh, there's there's a lot of tailwind for for those industries, especially on the comm side. So we're seeing that that's one of our sectors that velocity is you know luckily we're really not exposed other than energy to things that might be more hard pressed. The other thing is size size and scale of industry. Luckily, we're only a large enterprise company. We only sell large enterprises in health, in insurance, um, government sector, energy, media, and telecom. Those six. That's what we sell. Um, when we come into Salesforce, that broadens a bit uh, to just core banking and, and wealth and those kinds of things. But I, I, I think it's important to note that enterprise is going to be a lot more resilient. And to Dan's point earlier, those companies tend to have better balance sheets and some of those uh, kinds of things. And that, other than the really premium companies, better access to capital and more vehicles for access to capital. Um, SMB, on the other hand, and right down to kind of uh, you know, just outright small business, Soho, lifestyle business, all of that. Um, that's gonna, that's that's already seeing a tremendous, uh, a tremendously greater degree of trouble. Um, we're all familiar with, of course, uh, mom and pop shops and dentists and things like that that have been forced closed. Um, they're gonna have a tough time for a long time and many of those businesses will never come back. And that that will roll through the economy. I think it's, I think it's very difficult to say other than the dead count, the dead cat bounce phenomenon that Wiley talked about in the equity markets, which is always, always seems to be the case. I think other than that, it's very unpredictable. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even try to uh, guess how uh, enterprise software really uh, tech broadly or whatever is really going to do in the next several months, quarters, few years. I think it's incredibly unpredictable. So, and, and from my perspective, you got to take, you got to be a steady hand on the tiller got to take a very measured approach and you got to be as nimble as possible. And cash really is king. You know, Velocity is a cash burning business. We're a hundred percent grower uh, kind of company. So we're, we're, we have been and would continue to be fundable, but you know, we wouldn't be as fundable probably right this minute as we were three months ago, even, even though our growth is still great. Uh, so I think that, you know, access to capital is going to be tougher than it was. So I think kissing every dollar is going to be very relevant no matter what your scale and you are seeing even large enterprise customers say, hey, can I get better payment terms? Can I renegotiate the structure of my contract? Can I, can I de-scope my ACV annual contract value and then ramp back on a hollow ramp later? Um, there's, there's all those kinds of phenomena going on right now. And so I'd say keep it steady, keep it measured, be careful about hiring, um, you know, trim what you have to. Nobody's ever regretted trimming too much. I've never heard it in my entire career in a boardroom or in, or in an operating uh, 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 perspective, from an operating perspective. So, I mean, it's pretty harsh, but, you know, this is, you know, I think we're in for kind of a God knows. There ends up being a vaccine. There ends up being a, a very effective, a fast treatment scenario, things like that. Well, then it's great and everything will go nuts. And, for, and we all hope for that. But I don't think we can count on that. So I, I mean, I think that I don't care what the industry is. Um, it's a, it's very unpredictable. I'd say for at least the next several months, if not a bit longer, or quite a bit longer. 
A quick follow-up, Mike. I think you alluded to a couple of times of how the scale matters in the large enterprise or the companies who are selling to large enterprises are being resilient. Flip side, and 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 you know we all hear how large tech companies like Amazon is is doing very well uh, from yeah. sheltering in place. So if the largest tech companies are getting even stronger in this environment. Is that good or bad for entrepreneurship and startups? It might be good because those large tech companies are ready to fund startups, and I see that happening. Some tech companies, large tech companies, are funding startups, but it may be bad because it can become more anti-competitive for, for the small startups. What 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 do you what's your view? And and, yeah, I, mean, I, and I, Miley, I, I would like yeah. you to chime in as well. Yeah, for sure. I I. I I mean, I think that that's never good, right? I mean, entrepreneurship is where it's at. The U.S. leads in that, and look at even the biggest companies now、uh, that have this plus or minus trillion dollar market caps. These were just great、uh, startups, right? And Amazon's in Staples, and so it's got a tailwind. They've rolled up, they've arbitraged out so many small businesses, whatever. So I, I think that it's counterproductive if this is a contribution to driving out more SMB. Even if they're and you know they promote digitalization and they provide a digital、uh, first type solution, I think that's that's a that's a, a a real problem. And so, you know, this gets back to kind of what are we going to do from a from a policy standpoint?、Mm-hmm. Policy is going to be very relevant because there's nothing we can do in just sheer. Yeah, we can't just generate cash、uh, from public sources to overwhelm the needs of the economy. So I think.、Uh, The, you know, we're in a very sensitive policy phase, and it's it's going to be it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, how this how this plays out. I'm I'm worried about small business, as I said. I can't agree with you more. Yeah,、um, yeah. Me, I'll, I'll just make a、ahead. quick comment there,、um, Professor. That you,、uh, as you noted,、um, larger companies are have a clear. Larger companies with solid balance sheets, I should say, have a real advantage in this type of environment, where they have cash on the balance sheet、uh, and profitability.、Uh, you know, a significant chunk, for example, of the Russell 2000, which is a commonly、uh, tracked sort of small cap stock index, a significant chunk of、uh, the Russell 2000, something like a third of those companies are actually not profitable, and、um, those are the companies. That are going to be most vulnerable、uh, during this type of environment. When you're in the bottom of the swoosh,、uh, a lot of those companies were created and were really funded for environments when you're sort of at the top of the swoosh.、Um, and、uh, large companies, like I said, with with profitability, cash flow, and solid balance sheets, have a real advantage right now. And I predict、uh, consolidation. I predict continued consolidation across a lot of industries. We've certainly seen that in investment management,、uh, where a lot of smaller、uh, sort of boutiques have been swallowed up, purchased,、uh, or just、mm-hmm. put out of business by the large monster asset management firms、um, like like BlackRock, State Street, and、uh, for example, even Franklin. My own company recently bought Leg Mason, and another multi. Uh, affiliate、yes. investment management firm, part of part of that consolidation wave, and I predict that we'll see that type of consolidation across many、uh, many industries and many countries. 
Thank yeah, you. I, I, I agree with both both Mike and Wiley. I think, uh, you know, companies with those strong balance sheets, this is a great opportunity for, for them to mm-hmm. buy some cheap assets and really get some great technology at a deal relative to valuations that we saw leading into this. Um, and the same is true for well-capitalized VC and PE firms um, that, you know, have some dry powder to, to go after some great deals out there right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we have yeah. seen Airbnb investments, right. Twitter investments. Yeah. So there's still deals Lake. to be had. And I think there's still an opportunity for I- innovation, you know, in circumstances like this, right? Disruption, you know, can be quite likely um, as, as somebody thinks about something in a brand new way. But it's also quite likely that the investors behind that will be the big players out there already or, or some of the big VC and PE players. Right. You know, one, one uh, related thing there is the fact that uh, we've been very aggressive about there has never been a better time to go get that unicorn data scientist or this just rock star, you know, 3x quote every year kind of salesperson or whatever. Um, when everybody else is selling, you do want to be buying, right? I mean, it's just, it, it definitely works. And so to the extent that you are one of these companies that, that can do that, uh, for whatever reason, you're very fundable, you got cash, whatever, it's a good company. Now's the time to really trade up and, and really trade up on your staff. So there are opportunities for the best and brightest out there to, to get into some good companies and for companies like ours to go get people that in a much better time, it'd be hard for a little velocity to hire somebody like that. But uh, in this environment, even pre the uh, Salesforce acquisition, it, it really changes things. So that's a nice segue to our next two questions, which is about what kind of skills are really in high demand in this environment. So as we look into the future, whether it's a swoosh or a V or W, what kind of skills do you want in your employees? And um, what kind of businesses or companies will continue to do well? I think you were all touched on that. Those companies that are continue to do well in the environment, what skills will those companies need and be looking for? I think those are questions that, that uh, our students are really interested in learning. And let me expand on that a little bit to provide context. Many observe that and we talked about this already today, the digitization of the economy will accelerate even faster as a result of the pandemic. To give just one example, and uh, Wiley, you're talking about this too, that you are now doing large transactions without actual face-to-face meetings. So I'm hearing the same type of new terms like remote selling, asynchronous selling, um, or, or um, what was the other term? Basically, instead of having face-to-face meetings with clients, salespeople are making sales only through remote interactions with online and virtual meetings. So that's a difference. Uh, that's a change in the business practice that may or may not become permanent. Do you agree with this assertion that digitization would really transform businesses because of this uh, pandemic? And if so, how will it manifest itself? either in your industry or in the economy at large. Um, and um, don't really have a preference for who goes first, but um, Wiley, why don't you go first? <laughs> sure. Um, well, in terms of skills, 
I would say, again, um, if, if I were just coming out of school right now, uh, I would seek, I would probably be targeting those larger companies that we talked about. Uh, I know that working at a small company gives you kind of a broad experience. Many times you have, a, you're, you are jack of all trades uh, and uh, kind of forced to play many different roles and that's a, that can be a wonderful skill build, skill building uh, opportunity to work in an entrepreneurial environment. Um, uh, however, right now, I, I actually, as we mentioned, I think that getting large company experience in a particular uh, subject matter uh, is, in, could be a very valuable thing uh, and will set you up with the organizational and collaboration types of experiences that I think play well wherever you go uh, and are needed even more uh, today than before. If you think about the, an environment where many of the meetings take place virtually, you can think about how important really higher order collaboration and communication skills are going to need to be in that type of environment. Again, uh, not just to sort of uh, you know, share information, but to actually pull people into a decision that requires a degree of trust uh, and confidence and credibility, to do that in a virtual environment is a pretty higher order skill. Uh, and I think that many times working in a broader organization with lots of the, the complicated organizational structures that, uh, that, that larger companies come with, working in that environment for a while can be a tremendously valuable experience and as I said, can really build those collaboration skills uh, that can serve you later in your career if you choose to go the entrepreneurial route. That's just my personal thought on it. In terms of other types of skills, obviously in my industry, uh, finance, uh, economics, um, and I would say one important element that's uh, becoming an, an increasing focus in my industry is the incorporation of sustainability and values-based investing uh, into finance and economic disciplines. Uh, that is, uh, we, we increasingly see clients in different parts of the world wanting to use their money to uh, really help the planet or help their communities uh, and, uh, uh, and help companies uh, to, to do those same things, to help people in communities and uh, We've definitely seen that uh, as a skill set. And last but not least, I think um, uh, business and data analytics uh, is, uh, I think Mike said it earlier, is we, we cannot find enough people with solid business data analytics skills. Uh, they really have a, have a tremendous leg up. Uh, and so I know, I know that uh, the GSM has a program in that. And, even in a more generalized degree like an MBA, I would definitely urge everyone to, to get some business and data analytics uh, skills uh, and experience because that is, again, just like collaboration is something that almost every industry is going to be looking for. Wiley, you mentioned sustainability. So if you want to hire somebody who can be effective in push, uh, in, in, in um pushing your sustainability practice, are there any certifications that you find useful when you're evaluating people to hire in that line of investments? 
Yeah, or there, is there, there a demand for that? Yeah, there, there is a demand. It's growing. It's still relatively small. And as I'm sure as you know, the, uh, the, 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 the level of data that's out there to analyze around sustainability that's put out by companies is still pretty limited. Um, there is a certification. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's SASB, the Sustainable mm -hmm. Accounting. Uh, I think I'm blanking on the second part of the acronym, but it's SASB, the Sustainable Standard sustain Standard Board. Yes, thank you. Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. Yes, and they have a certification for the uh, analysis of company financial statements through a sustainability lens. Uh, and that's a growing, uh, that, like I said, that's a growing focus for many uh, asset managers uh, and people that have that capability and that those types of uh, relatively new certifications, again, really have a leg up uh, because there is, uh, there is a growing demand for that. And interestingly, the coronavirus uh, crisis has accelerated that because I think many of us have seen um, just the impact and the differential impact of the coronavirus crisis on different parts of society. Uh, mm -hmm. And yes. we've, many of us have wanted to use capital to try to, uh, you know, begin to address some of those things uh, and, uh, and perhaps so that the next pandemic that comes, because there will surely be another one of these, that our societies are perhaps a little bit better prepared, both all and all parts of society, not just, um, you know, not just certain segments. Thank you. That's very, very helpful. SASPI, by the way, I think based in San Francisco, so not far from where we are. Um, right. Great. Mike, please. So, yeah, I, I would add a few things. Uh, one thing, just as a brief aside, um, with all of this, and it really touches on something that, that Wiley just, just mentioned, um, it's, it's just going to be generally pandemic aside, uh, increasingly important to know how to persuade, sell, communicate, operate, whatever, remotely in these kinds of formats. Um, so one policy we have at Velocity, for instance, is if you're on a Zoom or a Google Hangouts or a Microsoft Teams video meeting, you can't mute your video. Um, we don't let you do it. The only exception is if you're driving. Um, and the idea is if your hair is messy, who cares? Um, or you're, you know, your, your kids are tugging on you, your cat's crawling on your shoulders. It's all good, it's spice of life. So I would just highly encourage people as they do more and more of this, that they move to always having live video. It does add a tremendous amount of camaraderie and teamwork generally. I mean, at the end of the day, human beings are pack animals. And the closer, you know, we want to approximate that as much as we possibly can. It's just a side issue. Um, I'm not shaming anybody who has it, uh, <laughs> doesn't have live video, so don't take it the wrong way, but it's just a comment. You'll set yourself apart, uh, trust me. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I would say is maybe it depends on your risk tolerance and your ability to be risk tolerant. You know, some people just can't be risk tolerant on, on income. Family to feed, whatever. Uh, they're the sole breadwinner or half the breadwinning. So I don't mean to say that this is for everybody. But if you have a personal situation where you can uh, have a higher risk tolerance, measure but higher risk tolerance, and you can reduce your personal cash burn to a very low level, in that case, or you have a kitty, you know, your own personal kitty or parents that have money that will give it to you, whatever, you know, just whatever the situation may be, 
But if you're in that situation, kind of like I was saying on the flip side of now's the time to go get that rock star whatever that you couldn't have gotten otherwise because there just aren't so many jobs out there. I would say the same thing is true in reverse. This is also a great time. If you have the ability to have a low burn and can take that risk, if you do, I wouldn't do it otherwise, but if you do, then you go to go to that that um, that entrepreneurial startup company and go um, get this great job that because there are a lot of people that don't have the luxury of being able to cut their burn rate. They, they're you know people that might have beat you out on that job just can't do it, so they're not they're not in the mix. So the the flip side here is you can go make you can do that bungee jump and go make that bold move right right here right now because um, there are companies that will hire. Um, uh, in, in this situation. So you want to look for those. The only advice I'd give on that, of course, if you're talking venture-backed companies, especially in the tech realm, there's what, seven or 800 venture capital companies, 20 that matter. Uh, go, to, go make sure that you look at Crunchbase, know who they're backed by. If they're backed by a who cares, don't waste your time if they're backed by one of the top 20 and you can possibly get in, you, you might want to consider it. So, So I would... I would I would say that about that. And what was the rest of the question, Ayako? Ayako. Um, so, what kind of skills are yeah, going those skills. to be? Sorry, in I knew I had one more. I, sorry, I knew I had one more point to make. The other one is what what I am always looking for, um, and we're looking for, and all the companies that I'm you know on the board of or affiliated with are looking for is these are all very high growth, very successful companies that built a lot of value. Knock on wood. Um, and it's all about uh, you know, operators that can walk through that, that can and will walk through walls. Um, and, and that's really important uh, because what my experience has been, if I look at companies that flail, become quasi zombies or outright fail, they're, they're, they're managed by people that won't walk through walls, just aren't willing to. There's a certain skill and willingness to that. And you can really sort it. You can almost get to a point, honestly, I've found where within five minutes of meeting the CEO, you can tell. You just, it's like, okay, I get it. We're good. Or, wow, we've got, I've got, to, I've got to get on that board. Or we have to invest because I spent some time in venture capital as well. So I think that, you know, especially with MBAs, with finance, all of that, that's crucial. I mean, that's my life. So believe me, I'm a believer. But there's people that are kind of like scorekeepers that still kind of look at it like a model. It's numbers on a page. Well, can't you just change this assumption? Well, God, if it were that easy, every company would be just hugely successful. Sadly, it's just not that simple. So some of that has an operator's mind. You know, uh, something I've learned recently with um, Salesforce is they have this term beginner's mindset. You know, I, the more I hear about it, I, I, I'm a big fan of Carl Dweck's mindset book with the growth mindset. It's kind of a variant of that, I guess. But that growth mindset, beginner's mindset, even better. Um, if you take that, that posture, no matter where you are in your career, right? I do it and I'm later stage of my career. Um, it's, it's more fun because you're constantly learning. You're constantly seeking to under, uh, understand and your job's going to be more fun, but the people are looking for operators. It's just like, don't tell me that you're some, you're going to do some great planning. I mean, sure. We need planning, but okay. A lot of people I can hire to plan and probably a lot of people that make a lot less than you. So, you know, just, just pick up operator skill wherever you can be an operator, be willing to walk through walls. If you can be risk tolerant, add that to your mix. Although there's lots of great careers where you don't have to add that to your mix. I, I guess those would be my comments as to what good times and bad I'm looking for. And these are you know, unprecedented times. And so if there was ever a time to, to, you know, if you can, if you got it in you to take that posture, I think it could be very fruitful. 
Thank you, Mike. It is true that a lot of the great startups are funded in downturns. That's right. And there's a lot of cash out there. I mean, Wiley's more of an expert than I am, but there is a ton of cash. It's not for lack of capital. Dan, please. Yeah, I would, I would second that. There is a ton of capital, particularly in private equity, kind of waiting to pounce. Uh, <laughs> And the the level of what they call dry powder, sort of uh, committed but undrawn capital from active private equity funds, venture funds out there is as large as it's ever been. Uh, it, it, and as soon as those companies, they're actually already starting to, to take action. So we've started to see capital calls on the private side. Yeah. Um, just to add a few thoughts on the the skills, and this might be a bit obvious, but um, yeah, adaptability to change, right? There is so much uncertainty out there right now. We don't know what's coming next, um, but we know it's not going to be the same as it was yesterday, and tomorrow, you know, the day after tomorrow won't be the same as tomorrow. So um, the ability to adapt to change and be resilient through that, and then on top of that, to lead through change, right? you know, Mike's comments resonated with me, right? Being an operator, part of that is is the ability to lead others and influence others, um, and particularly in, in a time of change and uncertainty. And, and extending from that as well is the ability to operate and make decisions given all the uncertainty, right? In such uncertain times, you don't have all the facts. Um, you don't know what a month from now is going to look like or a quarter or a year from now are going to look like, but you got to make decisions today um, and you got to get comfortable with that uh, over time. And you, you make the best judgment. You, you draw on your experience and what you learn from others and use that beginner's mindset. Um, I think all of those things are what, you know, I'm leveraging in the teams that I've built both at Sitecore and, and now that I'm, I'm learning from it at my new company. Um, you know, those are the things that I'm really relying pretty heavily on. Um, you know, Professor, you asked a bit as well about, you know, how how will biz, business get done differently, right? There's a lot of discussion around, you know, working from home becoming the new normal. And, you know, the work from home discussion isn't a new one. There's long been debate about whether it can be efficient, whether it's good for balance for people, whether it, it becomes inefficient for collaboration. Um, you know, I don't personally feel as though there's been anything conclusive about that. This is a real, a real life experiment. Yes. Um, and you know, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out. I, you know, I personally think um, the jury is very much still out. Um, you know, I think companies are, especially in technology, where it's much easier to work from home. It's much easier to function working from home as a company. Um, but you know, over time, as you're you know, every company that's working from home now came from an office environment for the most part, right? So they had cultural norms established. They had interaction points of collaboration between teams already established, right? That informal influencing network within an organization was already there. Um, and so it was relatively easy for that to migrate to a work from right. home and video conferencing environment. Over time, companies will have turnover and they'll onboard new people remotely. And you have, you know, those links that, that were already established uh, are no longer there unless folks are able to find ways to establish links that were so effective in, a, in an in office environment in a working from home context. And I think 
that question remains to be remains to be answered. I can really relate doing distance teaching this quarter. It's one thing to have a class that you already have met and, and built rapport going digital one day versus meeting on the first day of the quarter only online and yeah, trying I, to build rapport. That's that exactly, is a totally different experience. Exactly what I'm experiencing right now, right? With this new role I started a few weeks ago, it's all been remote. You know, I, I, you know, I, had, I had interviewed with a few folks in person before Shelter in Place came out, uh, but I haven't met any of my team in person. Um, and, you know, haven't had the opportunity to sit in front of somebody and, and build a relationship face to face. And, you know, you miss the informal interactions that you get by having lunch, you know, with sitting next to somebody at lunch and getting to know them informally or, you know, walking down the hall and saying hello to somebody and then seeing, you know, the mood you're in and vice versa, reading people face to face, you know, so as I try to get to know my team, you know, it's sort of, it, you know, I'm looking for ways to create those informal interactions because, you know, I can go set up one-on-one -on -one meetings with everybody in the organization and I'm doing that also, uh, but it feels more formal, more intentional. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking and trying and constantly trying to find ways to create the opportunities for the informal ways people get to know each other and build trust with one another. Mm -hmm. I think Wiley was mentioning this too, how to build trust without the physical proximity or the the going out for drinks after work or you know, none of that, but you can still try to build trust and so maybe a new practice will emerge from this experience and it will be very interesting to see how much of that will remain as permanent parts of a business versus will go away like many people are saying that the victory garden will not last, but some things will last. So that still remains to be seen. Um, now we are going to open up our forum for the second part where now we have asked all the five questions and now we'll open to the audience to ask the questions to panelists. So this is your time. If you have questions, please write in your chat window um, and I would, I would uh, read the questions for you. So please uh, go ahead. And if you want to ask the question to specific panelists, please indicate that. Otherwise, I assume it is for everybody. So let me start um, with um, the top question, which is, this is a bit of a uh, economy, the recovery of the economy question. Um, now, some states are starting to reopen the economy. Um, there is definitely a pressure to open the economy because of the negative impact on the businesses. But what if this will uh, result in a rebound of the virus? and we have to shut down the economy. How do we navigate that? And what do you see the risk there? And I think it is an open question to everybody. So feel free to chime well, in. Well, I mean, that's a, everybody's talking about this topic constantly, right? Um, and so it's a $64,000 question, I suppose. Um, clearly, we have to open the economy at some point. 
Um, and uh, there's just no way there's enough. I mean, you could put in extensive wealth taxes where they just start you know, pulling money from people and all kinds of things. There's just not enough money to go around if you have to fulfill the, the, this vast part of the economy that's shut down for a long-term period. So that does say that at some point, the economy has to open as safely as possible on some curve. Um, so this is, you know, pro sadly, probably a matter of opinion, but uh, as, as a kind of pro-people, pro-economy individual, I'd have to say that, um, that you know, you're going to have to do it with a lot of protective measures. I know at the Salesforce Tower, which is where I work, um, we are going to go in phases. There's going to be some a variant of red team, blue team, kind of what days you come in. Re, um, all the facilities are getting reconfigured for social distancing. There'll probably be face protection, except for when you're in a private area. It's just yourself, et cetera, et cetera. So we just have to move on. Um, we're seeing some rational curbs, you know, because you do have this great part of the economy that's small business. You're starting to see curbside and all these kinds of things. You have to do that. By definition, I mean, it seems obvious to me that, yes, of course, there's going to be increased cases. The other variable that isn't quite done in the quant way that a lot of us who are good data people would like to see is, you know, let's see ratios as to number of tests, as to number of cases, and number of positives. It could be because if we're ramping testing through all of this, we can make the case count look like it's going up faster because of loosening. I think these things are very complicated. I think it would be very difficult for the markets for sure, and potentially for the economy to have a start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. So it seems to me it should be a very measured approach. It should come over the course of time and it should be done with resilience so that yes, when you see the inevitable changes, like I guess it's happening in a couple of European countries, you got to stomach it uh, because eventually you're going to have to work some of this through the system anyway. And waiting for you know the the fast treatments and vaccines, that's that's uh, you know that's an unknown period. I don't think anybody would say it's guaranteed in six months, a year, two years, three years. There's no guarantee. Yeah, I think I, yeah, I, I agree. I agree, Mike, a lot with with what you said, and I. I it, it, it is an imperative, right? We have to start to reopen, and and the how obviously is the as you pointed out the big question. And you know, first of all, I'm glad I'm not a politician. Right? I don't have to make these these very <laughs> decisions. Um, you know, but you know, it seems for me, a, you know, as you pointed out, a measured approach, and that that to me means try something, see how it goes, and then take the next step. See how it goes, take the next step, right? And you, as businesses, you can. Um, you know, you can do that geographically, right? In the markets, you know, in Asia, for example, where where this started earlier and and is stabilized more than we are here in the States, for example, you might start trying things there and let that serve as a model or a, a learning platform to, to teach yourself about what you do in other markets where, where you can start to reopen. And I think economically, we can take a similar approach. I think part of our challenge as a nation is this is up to states and every state's gonna do it a little differently. And we can learn from one another, which is good, um, but uh, it, you know, it also adds a lot of inconsistency and, and confusion mm -hmm. to understanding mm -hmm. what's working and what's not. Mm -hmm. yeah, Wiley, no, um, can I add a little bit to your qu uh, you <laughs> the question that, that was posed by the uh, student, uh, the audience? 
what do you see in terms of like the global geographic? Do you see any gap in the, the speed of reopening the economy or the reco- economic recovery across regions, if any? Yeah, we've certainly seen very, very different approaches to uh, you know, dealing with this pandemic across different parts of the globe.、Uh, I don't know if anybody's been following the news from Sweden. But they、mm-hmm. took a very different approach. They did, they not, did not lock down. They did not shut down their economy. And、uh, they're, they're, they're now seeing cases climb,、um, but they, did not, they also did not experience sort of a dramatic overwhelm of their, their healthcare system, which is one of the best in the world.、Um, so they managed, to,、uh, they managed to not completely shut down their economy. and... Have sort of a reasonable caseload. The way I think about this、uh, is really it, it's going to be a matter of risk management.、Um, there's no way that any of us can eliminate sort of you know, risk in our daily lives to zero.、Uh, so I think my thought, in it, my thought on it is just like in managing a portfolio, you have to balance the risk. With the return objective.、Uh, and it's kind of the same way with, with dealing with societies、uh, and reopening them. I think it just has to be done in a risk controlled way. But I agree with,、um, with Mike, we absolutely have to open. We did a little research on the swine flu that hit、uh, Mexico、uh, about 10 or 12 years ago.、Uh, and what, what became very clear, and they attempted a complete quarantine and shutdown. And what What was found was that even if you shut down the economy, people can only stay quarantined in this type, type of situation for so long before they, they, they absolutely will start to come out and want to see their families and want to see their friends and start to interact. So even if the politicians say they shouldn't, they still will.、Um, and we actually saw some of that、uh, in、uh, some of the regions we operate in in, in Asia. You cannot, you simply cannot shut society down forever,、uh, e- even if the politicians want that to happen. So, really, reopening the economy in sort of a risk managed way is really the only choice. And it's a matter of doing it in a careful and measured way. Again, I think the way we're approaching it、uh, as a company is really we're, we're continuing to let people、uh, work from home,、uh, particularly those that might have immunocompromised folks、uh, or older folks. Uh, that could be more vulnerable to this、uh, in their families or in their homes.、Uh, they're going to continue to work from home. So we're, we're anticipating a new normal where we're going to have a significant chunk of our populace working, of our employee populace working from home for a long period of time to come until there is a much more sort of clear path through a medical solution. Thank you, everybody. Let me go to、uh, the next question. So, Um, two questions for different panelists. First question is for Dan and Mike. How does the recent shock change the decision making process on how much leverage for companies to take on?、Uh, is there any change in sort of the target capital structure? And for Wiley, when or if some companies begin getting downgraded from investment to junk because of COVID? Would that have an impact on your portfolio near, in the near term? So I'll start with、um, Dan and Mike and then go to Wiley. 
Jodan, please. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I come from most recently at Sitecore, a private equity back firm, and see, you know, a lot of private equity deals are funded significantly through debt. So, um, a very recent perspective on this. Um, you know, the, the circumstance at Sitecore was very quickly about uh, about liquidity, and you know, how do we solve for liquidity and um, I, part of the reason for that was be, the, of the burden of the debt service interest and principal payments due, um, which under normal circumstances wouldn't have been a problem, um, but certainly highlighted the what ended up being thin buffer in a circumstance such as this. Uh, now, we were able to solve for it and, and all is well, but I, I do ask myself that question as, as well about private equity. Will they continue to use use debt as much as they have. I think um, there may be a little bit of a drop in the near term. Uh, ultimately, I think they'll they'll go back to what what they've been doing. Um, VC side of the world where I am now, um, it's not a big part of capital structure in my experience to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't I don't see that changing dramatically. Personally, but interested to hear Mike's perspective. No, I agree with you. I've uh, I've I've never worked at a private equity backed company. My life has been all venture capital, um, which of course is the type of private equity that you, you know my point. Um, I would say it just for sure, it would make you want to lever less. Uh, that That is for sure um, in this environment because, you know, cash is king and you've got to be very careful and you can't have a part of your business sneeze and you get pneumonia. I mean, uh, that, that you can't expose a company that way. The CFO, I wouldn't do that. Um, I think from a you know a venture-backed company standpoint or a, a public company standpoint, well, venture-backed, I it is a, an important part of the capital structure. Typically, lines of credit and things like that, maybe a term loan that's stopped in or something along those lines. I don't think it's going to be that relevant in a public company setting. You know, I mean, it's been a really sweet uh, convert market up until recently, and that kind of thing. And you know, those things have long tails anyway. So. I don't know. I, I would say in general, less leverage now, no matter who you are. Um, but I don't think it affects um, the companies that that aren't that don't have that in their capital structure in any way. Miley. Uh, yeah, the question on downgrades. So um, I, I mentioned earlier that sort of we entered this uh, market turmoil period with our portfolios, which have the ability generally to sort of either lean into or lean away from risk. Uh, and we entered this market crisis sort of neutrally positioned. Uh, so we, we hadn't leaned away. Um, however, within our uh, different asset class allocations, we had, we had sought defensive positions uh, more, as kind of the default rather than more aggressive type of strategies within each asset class that we allocate to. And, and that included underweighting high yield bonds and preferring investment grade bonds going into this. So uh, investment grade bonds, as many of you might know, uh, the a lot of the issuance in investment grade bonds lately had been in triple Bs, sort of the lowest uh, investment grade rating. And, and we were concerned about fallen angels or um, sort of you know downgrades in the triple B category where they get downgraded and move to high yield. So we had actually leaned into investment grade strategies that 
um, that had gone up the quality and credit quality curve. So we, our portfolios were reasonably well positioned. Um, there was a huge concern about this issue of downgrades and the high yield market in general, which is part of the reason that the Fed stepped in uh, right. back in March and actually started to buy high yield bonds. And just today, they actually started buying high yield bond ETFs for the very first time. So a very unusual step uh, for a very unusual crisis. As I mentioned earlier, the, the Fed is taking some really unprecedented uh, levels of activism uh, in, in terms of participating in capital markets. Um, and, uh, and so th th that has averted the immediate liquidity crisis and, the sp and brought down spreads in the high yield market. I think longer term, I'm actually more concerned about the energy crisis uh, the, the change in the price of energy in the high yield market, as you might know, many high yield bonds uh, are sort of funding energy exploration uh, and energy, energy exploration for the most part in terms of oil exploration or natural gas has become largely unprofitable with oil at 20, 25 bucks. Um, and so I, I'm actually longer term thinking that may have a larger impact on the high yield market. So it is a place where I would be extremely cautious right now to invest. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Next questions probably will be the last question and it's sort of a multi-part, but they all relate to um, more on the people who are working. So people's uh, uh, employees perspectives. So question to all, what are some of the changes to compensation structures that different industries are witnessing in the midst of this pandemic? Two, um, any, uh, there has been, I'll just read it out, there has been a dark cloud of layoffs looming. Are we likely to see this in the months ahead and at what scale? And question three, and you can all read this too in the chat window. What have been some major shifts in structuring and functioning of finance teams within tech companies post-COVID, or has it been business as usual? So that third question is, is I'm assuming, directed at Mike and Dan. Uh, other questions to, to all. So, um, Mike, do you want to take that first? Then we'll go on. Um, Sure, I, I can. I can start. Um, there, there definitely is uh, with many companies some level of pay cuts that have been implemented. I mean, we haven't, but there are companies that have. They tend to be stratified, um, which is uh, highest comp player has the most. Uh, maybe second to the highest comp player has somewhat less, maybe half as much as far as percent of comp, and then below that is either something smaller or nothing, depending on the company situation. So that is definitely happening. I've already seen that happen. And I mean, you're seeing companies talk about that um, already quite a bit. Um, a lot of stopping of hiring. Again, there are exceptions to everything. So it's not, it's not all lost, uh, but there, is, there are a lot of companies that have either done a soft freeze or a hard freeze on hiring. On, on hiring. And then yes, there are some headcount reductions. Um, that's, uh, that, that is something that's happening. The, the, so some of the kind of more nuanced things that are being done that I think can be more effective in the long term you know, are things like taking some of the variable comp that was cast and make it equity. And that is something that is good because, you know, a lot of companies not gapped out uh, the stock-based comp anyway. And so, you know, it's kind of a free thing to do and, it, and it's good for cash. Those things can stick. 
What I'm very worried about, if you look at the 08, 09 debacle, um, a lot of companies cut pay broadly. Like I remember HP, I think we did 10% across the board, maybe a little more for executives, but they tended to treat their executives like aristocrats, so maybe not. But um, there was a pay cut, but I never did that. I was at a pretty large public at the time because how do you come back from that? I mean, if you cut pay, you know, when do you bring it back? It's kind of like once you close the economy, when do you reopen it and how do you do it? It's very hard. I mean, from a Wall Street guidance standpoint, you know, a year passes by and all of a sudden, oh, now I'm gonna have this pop in expense and this divot in EPS. I don't care how you say that, nobody likes it. So I, I like the more nuanced approach of not pay cuts, I'm not a fan of pay cuts. I am a fan of stopping hiring um, and headcount reductions you can do because then you can grow back, although you hate to have interruption of income. So you do, if you can afford it, you wanna be very um, magnificent in the way you implement it. So there's, there's, there's a nice tail on it. I, I think uh, it's, it's your duty as a corporate fiduciary. Um, so I, I think all of that, but I am seeing definitely all of the above, but I, I like it when I see more things move to, I, there's like one I'm involved in where it's a move to equity um, from cash. Everybody's a winner that way. And oh, by the way, if the stock's been the hit, then as as you as an operator drive more stock creation over time off of this, although not terribly low base, is why they pointed out at least somewhat lower. Um, you can make a lot of money. It's yeah, it's uh, it's your job anyway to drive the value over time. And then uh, in changing finance departments, I mean this has been around for like ten minutes. So no, I mean I don't know of any examples where people are like, oh now let's restructure finance. Um, I don't know, maybe Dan, you've heard of it. I haven't heard of it. Um, I don't know, Dan, what do you think? Yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't done anything either Wiley on the structuring side, um, either at Cycor or where I am now, you know, for the moment, I haven't seen anything that would suggest I, I would choose to do that, um, thus far, but certainly open to it. Maybe another way to phrase that question is if you are, I mean, I, maybe I'm a little biased because I teach this CFO immersion class that you all, you have been uh, speakers of. If you are MBA students who are interested in the finance jobs, um, what, what, what would you recommend that you, they spend time learning to address the new normal? Now that if you're joining the finance unit now, what should they be doing spending their time now? Find a, line, get as much of a line job as possible versus a pure staff job. I mean, that it gets back to the being an operator. Find, it, find something where you can be an operator, you can learn how to be an operator, learn how to be a better operator, whatever the case may be. Actually, there was a question. Um, can you uh, explain what being an operator means? To oh, some an operator students? is you're actually doing something, not just put numbers on a page. Um, <laughs> so if you're just pushing numbers around a model, and that sounds terrible because there are good jobs and we always need somebody who's, who's a good model jockey, don't get me wrong. Um, so it's okay, it depends on what you've done in your career already and how senior or junior you may be. Um, so I'm not against models, gotta have them. But, um, you know, I think if you're looking for upside, you're looking to make and make build a real career, I think the more you're an operator, the better, especially during these tougher times, because you're just more valuable. If all you're doing is some sort of staff, like scorekeeping role, you can be cut um, because, you know, we can live without that for a while. Not so making time. things but, happen you as opposed to, to just... Producing versus, it's, it's making the news versus reporting the news. 
Right. It would be another way to think about it. So you look for right. jobs like in sales ops or customer ops, where a lot of those orgs are kind of blended in finance, like it, in, at my company, like it has for many years. Customer ops reports to me, so PS ops, sales ops reports in things where you can find where you can where you can be involved in that either directly or be right next to it, like in some senior type of uh, you know uh, go to market FP&A even that could. As long as you're really coupled with sales and sales and marketing or, or sales ops or customer ops, you could you, you become a quasi operator. That's what I mean. I guess that you might either want to be an operator or get really adjacent to where your day to day work. You know, I would normally have said sitting side by side with that's changed for now. <laughs> I would say uh, defend policy. Yeah, find a way to where you're on Zoom constantly with those people, with the sales people, with whatever or R&D or product or whatever, because if you're literally just back in the back office, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it's needed, and it, but it's, it's just more precarious. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Mike. And it, it, you know, to extend on that a bit, it's really about learning how things actually happen, right? How work actually gets done, how the business actually gets executed. What is a seller doing day to day? You know, what is a customer success rep doing day to day? Because ultimately, you've got to have an understanding of those things in order to connect the dots and draw the lines to financial performance, the operating performance to, to financial performance. But I think it's very well well represented, Mike. Um, you know, on the compensation structures question, you agree that you know we've seen companies out there impacting salaries. Um, you know, we've also seen you know, the mix of variable and fixed pay, right, in a COVID economy where, you know, your sellers just aren't able to be productive, right? The market isn't there for them to sell into, but you've got some very strong performers. You want to preserve talent to some degree. Um, you might change the mix of fixed and variable compensation to some degree to help preserve, you know, your key talent. Um, similarly with, with executives, I expect uh, less so with executives, right? Executives are ultimately accountable for, for the outcomes of the business, but I imagine that's probably happening to some degree there as well. Um, with respect to a dark cloud of layoffs, I do think there's, you know, that we've seen, a, we've seen the first wave, so to speak, right? So the companies that were not very well capitalized that, that were, or that were most significantly impacted because of the industry they're in, have already had to execute the, the layoffs that they, they needed to execute, or at least what they expected to for now. Um, those that were better capitalized are giving themselves time to learn, understand what's going on, try to get a better view of what's coming in the future in order to make decisions about it. But even in those cases, business is still being impacted, right? Revenue is down, or at least not where you were investing you know, expense to, to match to. And so you're still in a position where you got to cut costs, uh, but you're giving yourself a little more time to do that. And, and to that end, I think there is there is going to be another wave of, of companies having gone through that sort of wait and see uh, exercise to get a feel for how significant they need to go um, to come around and do that now. Um, I think less significant than the first round, uh, but I do think there's still another wave coming. Vaini. Yeah, I'll keep my my uh, comments quick here because I recognize we're in a bit of overtime, I think. But um, uh, I agree with everything that uh, Mike and Dan said. And the, the whole idea of line versus staff comes from the military. 
And another way to think about that is that the line positions are the ones with the guns um, and the staff positions are the ones with the pencils. Um, and so think of it that way. Um, and when you're in a company, you want to be the one with whatever the equivalent of the gun is for that particular company um, on the front lines, doing the hard work, uh, fighting the battles day to day. Uh, and uh, that was certainly where I always tried to position myself throughout my career. And it's been helpful, particularly during difficult times. Um, uh, and so I, I would seek that out uh, throughout, you know, particularly if I was coming out of B school right now mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, with the difficult economic environment. Interestingly, we, we have not uh, done any layoffs uh, at my company and industry layoffs uh, because, again, we're in a consolidating industry. I've been kind of a regular thing, but uh, the um, have a regular and slow and steady. It hasn't been sort of a wave of them. And, and actually, we're busy as heck. As I said, uh, a lot of finance can be conducted virtually, um, almost all of it. Uh, and so we're the first few weeks when our clients were kind of getting their bearings uh, from working from home uh, and, and the markets were going haywire. We were spending a lot of time on the phone. But we've seen a lot of new business activity over the last month. So my team is busy as heck talking to them. And, and uh, um, you know, frankly, we don't have the wherewithal to hire right now, but I certainly have the work uh, to, to hire some folks. So as soon as, uh, you know, markets stabilize and, uh, and things turn around a little bit uh, and the economy, we, you don't even need to have the, the, the uh, sort of light at the end of the tunnel right in front of you. As long as we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, I predict that that uh, that hiring uh, will start again. Uh, but again, choose your industry carefully. I think there's going to be some industries, like I said earlier, hospitality, travel, airlines um, are going to be tough. I also think and quickly, I do think there I noticed there was a question on sort of supply chain. And I, I do think in many industries we are going to see a reevaluation of supply chains. Uh, where some supply chains are going to come back on shore, not all of them, and not 100%, but I think we're going to see some of that. And I think that that actually could uh, bring back some manufacturing, something that we haven't seen in a long time uh, grow in the U.S. So I think and that would, would might, might in fact be welcome for many, many folks coming out of school. So anyway, I very much enjoyed um, this, this uh, forum and this opportunity, Professor. So thank you for, for facilitating. Thank you so much. Yes, the reference to the jobs with guns is interesting because there has been so much reference to the war economy these days, uh, comparing our economy to the wartime economy. So that's an apt reference. Now it's past 6.30. So this concludes GSM's first Zoom forum on emerging issues in business. I would like to thank the panelists, Mike, Dan, and Wiley, again, for your participation. Thank you so Thank much. You, Ayaka. Thank you all. It was a lot of Thank fun. You. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. And I wish everyone a wonderful evening. Yep. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you. everybody. Thank you. Mike, Dan, Thank you all. Thank you very much. Appreciate your participation tonight. Thank you, Rao. That was fantastic. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.